stand. You may be seated. I invite you to join me now in taking your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. We've already noted today is Palm Sunday, and it marks the beginning of the Holy Week. So with this in mind, we're going to take a break from our study of Nehemiah to look at the events that make up the Holy Week, or at least begin this morning with Palm Sunday. So our passage in the Gospel of Mark is one that may be familiar to you. Maybe not verbatim in verse, but it is in story, because it's a story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. But it's not just any sort of entrance, it's an entrance that denotes the final steps of his march to the cross and to the tomb. There's a, there's a sense there's a hidden meaning behind what is happening on Palm Sunday. It's a meaning that many people have missed out on. So as they are celebrating Jesus this morning, they are not celebrating for the right reason. We'll look at that here in a few moments together. But we have the whole story. We know that Palm Sunday leads to Monday, Thursday, and then to Good Friday, and then to Easter. And so we will look at that this morning, looking at this from Peter's perspective as recorded by his secretary, Mark. Let me pray for us as we come together now before God's word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us 52 days out of the year to worship you. 52 Sabbath days, 52 Lord's days. And on this Lord's Day, we also remember is Palm Sunday, that we have the occasion to pause and to look at the Gospels and be reminded of the events of this day that are not just historical in nature, but theological in meaning. And so may we see that and understand that. May we believe that Jesus was truly human, Truly incarnate, 100% God, 100%, 100% God, 100% man, but he was real. And on this day, some 2,000 years ago, he did ride into the gates of Jerusalem, and the people cheered him. But may we also understand the reason why. It was part of the plan of redemption, part of the plan of our salvation, part of the eternal covenant for Christ to be glorified and calling and bringing his people to him. Help us to see that and understand that and be convicted by that this morning. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Why are you untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. 
And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up, I loved to ride roller coasters. We would often make the trip from Sumter up to Carowinds as a family, or with youth group or school groups. As soon as we would get there, I would make a beeline to either White Lightning or Thunder Road or the Oaken Barrel. We're going back some time now. I don't think any of those rides are still there at Carowinds. I loved it. Any chance we had to go, I loved it. And especially when they, they took Thunder Road and they equipped it with the cars that would take you up backwards, right? It wasn't just enough to go forwards and enjoy it. Now you get to go backwards. I, I loved every bit of it. And every year, the, the fair would come, the county fair would come to Sumter. We would go and ride the roller coasters, not knowing if we were going to live or die when we saw the carnies who had put the rides together. Uh, but it didn't matter. We would take life into our own hands and trust that they were at least sober enough to tighten the right bolts when they put it all together. But I loved riding roller coasters. It was a thrill. But the older I have gotten, gotten, I've begun to not enjoy it as much. Roller coasters just aren't that much fun anymore for me. Now my children love them. And they love to go up to Tweetsie and Boone. So every time we go up, we take a surrogate parent. Madison, many of you remember our intern from several summers ago and, and a good friend of family. We call her and we say, we will pay for your whole way if you would just come and ride the roller coasters with our children. Because that's all I enjoy. I don't enjoy it anymore. The most I can do are the bumper cars and the chairlift. And chairlift is empty when they, when they stop it at the highest point and you don't know if you're getting down or not. But anyways, it's just reached that point in my curmudgeon years where I just don't enjoy them. I used to love them. The older I get, the less I enjoy roller coasters. As we've already noted, today is Palm Sunday, and it marks the start of the Holy Week. We go on to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday and Easter. And it is quite an emotional roller coaster of a week. We begin on this high note of celebration that Mark records of the crowds gathering, they're waving palm branches, and they're laying their robes and cloaks on the ground, and they're crying out the praise of Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we know the whole story, know that Jesus is coming in, he's on this very decided march to the cross. He's not just coming in for accolades, he is making his way to Golgotha. And along the way, we have Monday, Thursday, and Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. And he institutes the Lord's Supper, which points to his coming death and suffering. And then the story of Judas betraying Jesus, getting up from taking the institution of the Lord's Supper and going out to betray Jesus. And then we keep that downward trend. We find Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays and sweats drops of blood. And then here comes the crowd, the legion of Roman soldiers. And Judas comes up to him and kisses him. And he is now betrayed fully. And he goes through the scam of the trial and is treated lesser than less. And then we hit that bottom when they crucify him. They nail him to the cross. And he suffers hell on the cross. And he cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he sped on and mocked and scorned 
And in the ninth hour, he dies. His broken body is gently taken down from the cross to be lovingly wrapped in linen and laid in the tomb. And as if that, all that isn't emotional enough, we then hit the pinnacle on Easter morning. When everything seems so dark and so hopeless, the stone has rolled away from the entrance of the tomb and the resurrected Jesus now walks out in eternal victory over sin and death for his people. When we stand here upon Sunday, we stand here at the precipice of an emotional roller coaster of a week with a number of emotional ups and downs. And when I was a younger Christian some 20, 25 years ago, I loved the roller coaster nature of this week. I loved the Holy Week because it was exhilarating to take all the story of Jesus coming through Sunday, leading to Thursday and then Friday and then Sunday, and to know that this is the story of my salvation. It was exhilarating. But I found it's because there's very much a sense where it was just like a movie to me. This was happening to someone else, somewhere else, and I reaped all the benefits of that. But over the years, as the Spirit of God has guided my growth and faith, spiritual maturity, I don't find this week as exhilarating anymore. The emotional roller coaster nature of Holy Week just doesn't thrill me like it used to. Matter of fact, it's become the opposite. It's a week that can be somber. It can be heavy. It can be weighty in thought when we take into everything that happens. But especially when we come to realize that Scripture teaches that we are no longer participants. I'm sorry, Scripture teaches that we are participants in this week. We're not spectators to the Holy Week. We're not on the sidelines, exhilarated by all the ups and downs of what happens to Jesus, enjoying the story. No, Scripture teaches that as a Christian, we are now participants in all the stories of this week. When we read about the crowds waving out, waving palm branches and putting the rows on the ground and crying out, Hosanna, that is us. We are there with Judas who chose sin over Jesus. We are there at the cross with the crowd watching Jesus suffer and die. So when we read these accounts, there is very much a sense that that crowd crying out, Hosanna, blessed be the name of him who comes in the name of the Lord. That's our voice. And when we come to Monday, Thursday, and we read of Judas taking the Lord's Supper, that, that, that supper that points him to the pain and suffering death of Jesus Christ, and Judas takes that supper and then stands up and walks out to go betray Jesus, that is our betrayal of Christ mirrored in Judas. And when we get to Good Friday and we read in the crowd that scorns Jesus and ridicules him and spits on him, we are there with the crowd. We are no mere spectators to the Holy Week. We are participants to all of this. There's our voice in this crowd in Jerusalem this day some 2,000 years ago. It was our shadow that followed Judas as he betrayed Jesus with a kiss for a little bit of pocket change. It was our scorn 
and ridicule that was hurled at Jesus while he suffered on the cross. We are in this story. And we're not talking about some sort of science fiction deal going on here. It's there's some rift in the space-time continuum that defies all the laws of physics. No, we're, we're simply talking about what Scripture teaches us. We think of Paul teaching us in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul's theology is a spirit-given theology, but it's a theology that doesn't pull punches. I don't think Paul would have made a good southern gentleman. He didn't know how to frame things in nicety, so he tells us very simply, congratulations, at one time you were enemies of God. And he doesn't mean that we just, you know, we weren't friends, we didn't run in the same circles, or we weren't acquaintances, or we just weren't that fond of Jesus, we didn't share the same hobbies. No, he means we were actively set as enemies against God. And what does it mean to be an enemy? At the very core of being an enemy is hatred, isn't it? To think of calling somebody an enemy, at the very core of that, there's hatred. And so, so Paul is telling us we're not passive enemies of Jesus. We are active, aggressive enemies of God. We were enemies of him. We hated God. We didn't want any part of him. We didn't want God to exist. As we go to our computers and we, and we turn on the news and we see what's happening in Ukraine and, and, and all the horrible atrocities of Russia against Ukraine, what is it at the core of that? The core of that is enemies. At the core of that is hatred. And we were once enemies of God. Make no mistake about it. Before Christ, you hated him. Now, this may not have registered in your conscience. You may not have gone around and introduced yourself and say, Hello, I'm James McManus, and I really hate Jesus. Hello, I'm Thomas Hardison. I'm an enemy of God. Would you like to join my cause against him? It may not have registered in our conscience, but it was seen in our sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. It was seen in how much we loved and pursued our sins. It was seen in our willingness to much more listen to Satan and follow along his path to hell. And Jesus even warns us in the Gospels, if you're not for him, then you are against him. We were his enemies. We were born in our Sins and trespasses, we were born enemies of God. And so that means that our voices and our, and our attentions are mirrored here in the crowd who praise Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible, but the Jesus that they wanted. The Jesus they concocted. The Jesus that made them feel comfortable. And it means that our sinful betrayals are mirrored in Judas. I don't know if any of us have, have taken money to physically betray Jesus. I don't think we have. But we have all spiritually betrayed him when we have chosen to pursue sin instead of him. When we have seen the path laid out for us and we said, mm, I know better than you, Jesus. I'm going to go the other direction. We have been like Peter. 
when we had those occasions to stand up for Jesus, when our faith is being attacked, when our church is being attacked, when our Jesus is being attacked, and we have the opportunity to stand up for him, we stand to the side and go, that's not my Jesus. That's not my concern. That we're more concerned for our comfort and safety. We don't want to be weird. We don't want to be one of those holy rollers. So we deny him. And the mocking and the scorn and the ridicule of the crowd at the cross is ours. Because they hated Jesus. And one time you too hated Jesus. And somewhere inside of you, he really enjoyed that he was crucified. Make no mistake, we are not spectators to the story. We are participants. And that is a sobering fact, isn't it? That if we could have a rift in a space-time continuum, we could defy all laws of physics. There's a high likelihood that if we were living back in that time, we would have been in this crowd crying out, Hosanna. And then five days later, we would have been in the crowd throwing stones at Jesus and crying out, crucify him. We are no mere spectators. At one time, we were their participants. But the gospel is good news. And the good news tells us there's another side to this story. We think of Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We think of him explaining to the Romans, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, have, we too might walk in the newness of life with him. We have been united with him in a death like his. We will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our old self was crucified with him so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the good news of the gospel is the union with Christ, that we are one with Christ, that what happened to Christ happened for us. And Paul says very clearly along all scripture that Jesus' crucifixion is our crucifixion. When we come to Good Friday and we think of Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, why have you forsaken me? It is finished all that was said and done on our behalf. That Jesus would take all the wrath of God and all the penalties of our sin on the cross so we would not have to. Not just be physically crucified, but spiritually crucified to suffer the wrath of God. Jesus took all that on our behalf. His crucifixion has become our crucifixion. He went through hell so we would never come close to the flames of hell. And when they laid him in the tomb in death, we were laid there with him. His death is our death. So that when he rose out of that tomb on Easter morning, the stone rolled away and he wrote, walked out all of his resurrected glory. We walked out with him as well. 
His victory over sin is victory for us. His victory over death is victory for us. That's why Paul ends his first letter to the the Corinthians by saying, death has lost all of its sting. Why? Because Jesus took that sting and he took all the poison in his own death. And so when we get to Easter morning and Jesus walks out of that tomb, then we know too, through faith in him, we walk out with him and the newness of life that he has secured for all of his people. So the good news of the gospel is that we are no mere spectators to Holy Week. We are participants. Starting with Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter, we are participants in this story of redemption, this story of our salvation. But the question is, what kind of participant are you? Do you participate as an enemy of God? You're here, but do you know him? Do you love him? Do you follow him? Is your life a life marked by obedience? Or is it a life marked by disobedience? Do you participate as an enemy or as a child? Do you participate as one who has received and rested upon Jesus alone for salvation as he has been offered to us in the gospel? And before you answer, as I imagine everyone here would go, well, yeah, I'm participating as a Christian. Let's look a little bit more at our passage to help us better evaluate our answer to these questions. As we already said, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on his Sunday some 2,000 years ago, he did so straight on a march for the cross. He and his disciples had made the mountain to Jerusalem in time for Passover. And they sang the Passover Psalms. They sang Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From which shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. They made their way up the mountain to Jerusalem. They're joining the multitudes of other Israelites who have come upon the city to celebrate as well. But as we see in the testimony of the Gospels, that as Jesus and the Twelve have been making their way, and let's talk about it in big terms for the past three years, heading up to this point, as they've been making their way to the city of God, word of Jesus had already reached the city. And we've talked about this years ago in our study of the Gospel of Mark. But what we see happening here is like a tsunami. And a number of tsunamis begin as these barely perceptible waves out in the ocean. You wouldn't even notice it. But as the wave makes its way closer and closer to the shore, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually as it comes on shore, it becomes this enormous force that will change everything. And that's what's happening here with Jesus. For three years, he has been teaching and preaching. He has been uh, doing miracles. He has been doing ministry, bringing the kingdom of God at hand. And all this has now come before him. And so as they are coming up to the city, the tsunami of who Jesus is and what he has done has reached the city and nothing will ever be the same. And so when we get to Palm Sunday and we read about this crowd, it means that a majority of the people here who are celebrating his arrival had at least heard about Jesus. Some of them have may have even gone and heard Jesus preach. They may have been a part of 5,000 who were, who were fed miraculously. They may, they may have been at the, at the Sermon on the Mount. But some portion of them have probably gone out and 
heard Jesus preach and teach, but at least the majority of them had heard the testimonies. Have you heard about this Jesus? This is who he says he is, and, and this is what he has done. So it's because of that that they, that they, they bring from their normal pace of the day, and they come and they gather palm branches and cloaks, and, and then why they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. But what we find is what they were saying did not match with who Jesus is. What we find is that these people wanted a Messiah of their own making and choosing. They wanted a Messiah that fitted them politically and culturally. They wanted one who would bring about the reign of David, who would make them safe economically and politically. They wanted a Messiah that would make sure they would have a four-bedroom house and a week at the beach in the summer and a place at the river and nice clothes and nice cars and to go out to eat whenever they wanted to. They wanted a Messiah that made them feel good and safe. They weren't looking for salvation. They were looking for comfort. They weren't looking for a righteous and holy God who would go and defeat Satan and sin on behalf of his people. They just wanted warm fuzzies. They wanted to feel good about themselves. And they wanted the promise of a Messiah who made sure that they would live well. That four-bedroom house with a pool and brand new cars in the driveway. Our cars are no more than five years old and less than 100,000 miles. And all the nice clothes you could want and all the nice food and all the nice vacations you could ever ask for. That's why some of the crowd laid out their cloaks. That's why some of them gathered palm branches. That's why some of them cried out to Jesus. But they would soon be the ones who were crying out to crucify him. It's important that you and I have a good understanding of how we understand Jesus. Many of us are like these people in this crowd. You've heard about Jesus. You've grown up in this church. You've been coming to church here for a while. You've gone to another church. You've heard about this Jesus. You've, you've heard the gospel. You've, you've sung the songs. You've gone to VBS. You have, you have gone to, to Bon Clark. And you, you've heard of all about this Jesus. The tsunami of the gospel has reached you. But the question is, what have you chosen to believe about Jesus? Who is the Jesus that you worship this morning? Is your Jesus the one who only exists to make you feel happy and comfortable and for you to live a good life? Is your Jesus just part of a resume to have a good standing in this small southern town? Because we all know if we meet somebody here in Winsboro and we ask them where they go to church and they say, I don't go to church, we give them the stink eye, right? And none of us want the stink eye. So I better go to church so I at least seem respectable in this town. Or is our Jesus just there to help us keep up to the tradition of our family? 
Because my parents went to church, my grandparents went to church, my great-grandparents went to church, and my great-great-grandparents built the pew that I'm sitting on every Sunday. That's what we do. We go to church. Is your Jesus just there to make you comfortable? Or is your Jesus the one who will confront your sins? Who will take you by your hand and help you see the depths of your sinfulness? And when you stare into that hellfire pit of your sins, he offers you the balm of his suffering and death and resurrection. Does your Jesus ever make you uncomfortable? Because he says that's a sin and that will send you to hell. Does your Jesus make you uncomfortable by saying you need to die to that sin? Does your Jesus make you uncomfortable by reminding you over and over again the answer is only found in and with him? Imagine you have a mirror that shows you your spiritual reality. What do you see when you look at it? A slightly less holy and righteous version of your Jesus that ultimately your Jesus is just you spiritually bathed with the nice haircuts and clothes? Or do you look in your spiritual mirror and you see the warts in all of your sinfulness? But yet you hear off there to the side Jesus saying to you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus do you see when you look? Or what do you see when you see, look in the spiritual mirror? Your Jesus or the Jesus of the Bible? When we come together for worship, we are always using the same language in our worship. But we find that the language of worship for these people didn't mean what it should have meant. And the language of our worship is very scriptural. We sing from the Bible. We pray the Bible. Our hands are based upon the Bible. We have a Bible that stays up here the entire time. When you use the language of scripture... In worship, is it describing your Jesus? I've shared with you before one of my favorite quotes and illustrations and it comes from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy have made their first trip together to Narnia and they're going to find Mr. Tumnus. But they end up coming across Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the beavers invite them back to their house and there's this quaint little beaver hutch there. And as Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy gather by the fire and drink tea, the conversation turns to Aslan, who is the lion, who is the Christ figure in Narnia. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver say, Aslan is a lion. He is the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. That's who Jesus is. 
Jesus doesn't come to make us feel safe, but he's good. The crowd, they didn't want a good Messiah. They wanted a safe Messiah. But Jesus' ministry isn't to make us feel safe in our sins, safe as we make a a path trodden to hell. No, his ministry sent forth his word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, which pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a word that through the work of the Holy Spirit shows us our sins and shows us the price that everyone must pay for their sins unless we repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And when we did do that, then we see the goodness of Jesus. We see the goodness that the second person of the triumph Godhead would suffer and die for me. One of the most enormous lines we sing in any hymn ever written is, in, in, in the father, is the, how deep the Father's love for us when we sing, it was my sins that held him there. We know the story. We can visualize them hammering the nails into Jesus' wrist to hang him up upon the cross. That's the historical reality, but we know the theological reality. It was my sin that held him there. And he was put there out of the goodness the goodness of who he is, it was his will to be held there by our sins, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. If your Jesus is safe, then your Jesus isn't real. But if your Jesus is good because he has saved you an enemy of God, then your Jesus is eternally real and good and gracious. So the question this morning is, what Jesus do you worship? Is your Jesus someone who doesn't look much different than you, but makes you feel safe? Or is your Jesus the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible who isn't safe, but is good? We'll close with this quote. It is misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. Nor does he mean to leave us the way he found us, but to transform us into the likeness of his son. Without that transformation and new conformity of life, we do not have any evidence that we were ever his in the first place. The greatest mistake we could ever make is having a Messiah that makes us feel good culturally and politically to make us feel good of our sinful choices in life. We need a Jesus of the Bible who is holy and righteous, gracious and merciful, who will confront you with your sins, make you uncomfortable to stay there, and encourage you to walk with him in that newness of life. What Jesus have you chosen to believe in worship. Pray with me.